Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I almost said 11. Chapter 12. This morning, as we continue our study through chapter 12, through our study of Hebrews, we're in chapter 12, we'll end Hebrews, our study together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, at Easter. Easter morning, we'll be looking at the last few verses. Um, we'll have a, a, a baptism as well about the resurrection of Christ. And from there, we're still m- mapping out where we're going next. So be praying for the pastoral team. We've got some ideas. Uh, we should have it nailed down pretty shortly as we seek God's direction for our church and for us so Hebrews chapter 12 is though where we are all the two chapters left but there's a lot here so we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 11 chapter 12 verses 1 through 11 hear the word of the Lord the authoritative infallible inspired word of God Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 reading from the ESV therefore Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we will share in his holiness. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But, ra- but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Quick reminder, remember these are Christ followers this letter is written to. Written to. Christ followers who are primarily Jewish, and because of their faith in the Christ, in the Messiah, they're being persecuted. And chapters 1 through chapters 10, I think, can be summed up by simply reminding ourselves of the purpose of the book. Why was the book written? What is the purpose of Hebrews? And we said over and over, it is to declare the sufficiency and supremacy and superiority of Christ. Not just to show us that, but to encourage us, to exhort us to remain faithful, to remain faithful in the midst of trial and struggles and persecution. Stay close to Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Don't look anywhere else for your communion, your fellowship, your intimacy with God is through Jesus. Don't look anywhere else for your hope, your strength, your salvation, your identity than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And remember, chapter 10 ends with an exhortation to press on. We saw exhortations, we saw warnings, we saw uh, all kinds of things in this letter. And and in chapter 10, verse 39, we're reminded to press on. Chapter 10, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're not those, we talked about this, who apostatize, who apostate, who say they profess Christ, then walk away and never to come back. Turn your back on Christ. We're not those, we have faith. Faith that perseveres or preserves their souls. We, we said that faith, we didn't say that, the Hebrews author said in chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is, what is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for, things of the future, things that God has said, who God is, we're convicted, it says conviction of things not seen. So there's a hope of future things, there's a conviction of things not seen. We trust God, we believe God, we believe his promises, we believe who he is. Chapter 11, verse six, without that kind of faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever believes, whoever would want to, uh, have, uh, uh, to please God would draw near to him. Believe that he exists, chapter 11, verse 6, and rewards those with himself. So you see what's happening, saying, listen, persevere, press on, Christ is sufficient, Christ is supreme, Christ is all you need, press on in the faith. Even though you don't see him, have hope in the future of what God has said and what God will do. Then the author launches in chapter 11, we looked at the hall of faith. Those who have pressed on. And he's given us illustrations, or I should say examples after examples, to, to the people that he's writing to and to us this morning uh, to persevere in the faith. Chapters 1 through 10, Jesus is better. Chapter 11, press on. Okay, that's the context. And chapter 12 opens up with another exhortation. What the author wants us to see this morning is not only is Jesus supreme and sufficient uh, and everything you need, He's the high priest. He's, he's the better high priest. He's the better Moses. He's a, he's, a, he's a better testament. New Testament is better than the Old Testament. Not only is he better, and not only is there those who persevered in the faith, chapter 12 is like, you can do it too. Chapter 12 is like, we've done it. You can also. Press on, congregation. That's what the letter, he's telling these persecuted Christians, that's what he would tell us this morning, to press on, to endure to the end. We can join them in the Old Testament, or the people before us, I should say, and press on. So three things, three headings, really simple. Run the race, or running the race, receiving fatherly discipline. That's a fun verse to preach. Can't wait, right? And remembering God's purpose, very important. So those are the three headings of our text this morning. So let's look first at running the race. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. For those who are coming to the class this afternoon, you could see a cause and effect. We'll talk about that. Therefore, you have a crowd, right? Whenever we see therefore, we have to ask the question, what is therefore, therefore? In other words, how does what has been already taught, what has already been said, how does that shape the context? How does that shape the text moving forward? And the author wants us to know that we're not alone, that, there, that we are surrounded. We, we are to live in a culture, we are to live in an understanding in this present time, then and now, 
knowing that there are many have gone on before us and are cheering us on. Chapter 11, when you read that chapter, you could, I don't know about you, but you walk away saying, man, they had some faith. I mean, they, they I can't, I, I, you know, sawn in two, and I mean, they had some really strong faith. That's not what 11 was written for, and I remind myself, I remind you. Chapter 11 was written not to say you could be like them, but that they made it, I can make it. I can, I can make it to the end. The same God that was strengthening Moses and, and Rahab and all those in the Old Testament and enabling them to press on is the same God strengthening me, enabling you and me to press on. This is not simply dead men and women to be remembered, but living witnesses to be heard this morning. Like Abel, chapter 11, verse 4, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Puritan John Owens writes, all the saints of the Old Testament, as it were, stand looking on us in our striving, encouraging us onto our duty and ready to testify onto our success with their applauses. They are placed about us unto this end, onto this end. We are compassed or compassed with them, surrounding, end quote. I remember, I remember my first sermon. I, I was reminded when I was studying this and, and seeing this great crowd of witnesses and how intimidating it could be, right? I remember my first time I preached at the old church I was at and, um, where I really got a lot of training. And uh, so I wear Christmas this morning. And I remember pre- the pastor like, all right, you're going to preach Sunday morning. And I thought, okay, that's great. And, I, and I'm, I'm preparing. And I remember going into the pulpit and seeing Pastor Don Lyons sitting right there like the lead pastor in the front row. Now, I'm trying to give God the glory. I get that. I understand that. But if I was honest, a little intimidating, senior pastor right there, watching every word you say, listening to every word you say. And behind him, a couple of rows, there's Perry Jones, you know, with, with a Greek New Testament. You don't even read English. And I'm like, man, I got these verbs. I better be right. You know what I mean? The presence of significant witnesses is motivating, right? Whatever you do. And the scene this author is painting for us this morning is this, is this stadium, this, this coliseum where we're running this race. And, and there's this cloud of witnesses that fills the stadium, that the spiritual uh, athletes of the past, chapter 11, right? The Hall of Fame. Obviously, they're not literally, I read some commentaries, people are arguing about whether they're literally watching us from the clouds. There, there's no biblical support for that whatsoever. The witnesses is not the fact that they're, the witness is that in their past life, as they live their life, in their persevering, is like a giant crowd that has already been before us, cheering us on. Like, I did it, you can do it. F.F. F. Bruce, listen to this, this one quick statement he makes. I think it's so important. F.F. F. Bruce says this, it is not so much they who look at us as we who look at them for encouragement. That's the right interpretation. You probably heard this saying before, if you haven't, I'm sure you have, let go and let God. And that's true under some circumstances. If you're a worrier, or you have anxiety and, and stress over future, uh, that, that could be something you need to wear around your neck, right? Let go and let God. But it's not true in, in the sense of growing in grace and running the race. As, as, as we recognize that, that being a Christ follower is not 
you know, this short distance, our daughter's race, especially Grace, was a race. It's not this short distance, you know, 100-yard dash. It's, it's a marathon. It's a long-distance run. And sanctification, becoming more like Christ, doesn't happen just accidentally. We got to purpose and understand we're running the race to grow in grace. It's growing in grace. It's something that we aim for. It, it, it is not something we do in our own strength, for sure, right? And growing in grace does not contribute to our salvation. It's a product of it. We are saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But we grow as we run in grace. And one of the ways, there's a lot of ways, we're not going to talk about them all today, but one of the ways that grace appears to us is this in being encouraged by those who, by grace, went before us and made it to the end. One commentator says, Moses is stroking his long beard and smiles. Rahab winks and gives a royal wave. Your heart is roundly pumping. You're afraid, and with all your being, you want to do well. Not literally, of course. Run the race. Run the race. Well, how? How can we do well? How can we run the race? Look at our text. Number one, it says we're running the race. Run with endurance. Look at verse one. It says, let us also... Not only understanding the cloud of witnesses, but also lay aside every weight. See that? Interesting word. When I was younger, I, I dabbled in boxing, wasn't very good at it, um, but I did it. And when we would spar, when we would work out, we hit the heavy bag or we would spar, we would put on heavy gloves. We would wear 14-ounce or 16-ounce gloves. The reason we did that is because once we stepped in the ring on fight night, we would wear 10-ounce gloves, something lighter. The same principle for, for baseball players with a sleeve or a donut. Before they get up, they're swinging a heavier bat. So when they get up, it's lighter. They could swing faster. Well, in the ancient days, the runners used to run races with weights on or heavy clothing on. Practicing, I should say. They would practice running with these weights. And that's where this author is getting this, 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 this idea that as they ran the race... They, they actually took their clothes off, and everyone I read said naked. I, I, I'm like, really? So streaking was alive and well back then. Um, and, and they would run. In other words, let the weights off as you run. And the writer of Hebrews saying, lay aside every weight, anything that you've put on that is now slowing you down, you need to cast off. You need to, 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 to put it off so that you can run well. So I guess the question for us is, what are the things in my life, what are the things in your life that weigh you down? What are things that, that I am involved in, maybe you're involved in, maybe life choices that I make? Are, are, ask the question, are they helpful or are they hindering your walk with God? I won't be the judge, you do that. What's in my life that's hindering my walk? What's in the things that I'm doing that are helping my walk with God? They, they may not be sinful, we'll get to that in a minute. But heavy hindrances could be a, a career path for you, could be relationships, goals, hobbies, friendships, relationships, habits, obsessions that's hindering you. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, a life check. What is it in your life? You guys could talk about it in community groups. 
Now, as we turn to sin, the issue of sin, things get a little bit more serious, I think. Look what it says. It says, hindrance is weighs down, but sin clings closely. Sin which clings closely. NIV, if you have an NIV, it says, lay aside weight and the sin that so easily entangles. Because the Greek word there talks about something that places yourself in, in a loop. Like a, like a string or something that traps you and wraps your limbs and you fall. Things in your life, sin in your life that make you trip up. I think of King David, right? Had an issue with the ladies. Didn't deal with it. Almost destroyed him. Maybe things like lust and greed, hatred, pride will trip you up if you don't deal with it. I think one of the main, contextually, what the, what the author may be talking about here is the sins of unbelief. Not trusting, not walking, not, not obeying, not relying upon Christ. Things like that trip us up as we run. They're things that uh, we must reject, we must deal with. Otherwise, we get entangled in the race. To run for perseverance, we have to, to, to grow in grace, grow in the word, grow in obedience to Christ as we are training to make right choices. It's about involving, you know, from, I think practically we could say it's because it's, all of us are sinners. It involves confessing sin quickly, dealing with it, repenting of sins regularly. So we run the race that's set before us with endurance, with the encouragement of those looking on, checking our life and, and, and the things that could hinder us, and then dealing with sin in our life, we can run well. And then look at verse 2. Look to Jesus. <laughs> Don't do this on your own. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The word looking means to turn the eyes, the mind away from other things and to fix them to look onto something else. That's the encouragement we need as, as things in our life, whether it's habits or stuff that's tearing us down or it's sin, it's, it's the things in our lives that lure us in, that threaten us to knock us out of the race. We need to keep our eyes, not even on ourselves. Notice what it said, doesn't say, look to yourself. Look deep, hard into your own soul. It doesn't say that. It says, look to Jesus. Not to the things that you've accomplished as self-righteousness or, or things that you haven't accomplished, and it's, and you know, it's, it's, it's poor me. It says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The source, the fountain, the one which, who can give us spiritual strength. He is the founder. That word is, means forerunner, pioneer, one who goes ahead to blaze the trail, overcoming obstacles and making a way. He's the founder. He's the perfecter. In other words, he's a supreme and perfect man of faith. And literally, it literally means perfecter of the faith. So we had the faith of those in chapter 11, and the author says, you know what? There was one that actually, because in chapter 11, they're still sinners. They're, they have faith. They don't have faith. We looked at Abraham, and he was not, you know, not like he had faith every day. Jesus did. Didn't miss a beat. Didn't stop trusting the Father any time in his life. He always trusted the Father. He's the perfect one. He is the one who blazed the trail, removed the obstacles, became the perfect, complete example of life, of the life of faith. One Greek scholar says this, one who has in his own person raised faith to its perfection and so set before us the highest example of faith, end quote. I'm reminded of this verse in 1 Peter. 
I mentioned this verse a lot. I just love this verse. It says, when he, Jesus, was reviled, when he was hated and persecuted, beaten, mocked, he did not return, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Listen, hit me again, I will destroy this whole earth. I'll take you out with just one thought. You're done. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, his father, who judges justly. He lived an obedient life and enabled him to go through the mocking, the crucifixion, rejection, and desertion. Look what it says. Who for the joy. See that? Verse, verse 3, verse 2, and the verse 2. Look at the Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice it doesn't say for the joy of going to the cross. I can't wait to be crucified. It says, for the joy that was set before him. And the question is, what is that joy that was set before Christ? To endure the cross. Was it the completion of the work of reconciliation and redemption that he came to do? Was it, was it maybe when, when the father, he gave up his spirit, and, and he, well, right before he gave his spirit, he says, it is finished. Maybe rejoice in what his suffering and, and redemption and his death and resurrection would accomplish, the redemption of, of, of people, a purchased people that was purchased by his blood. Maybe it had to do with his bride, our, etern, uh, you know, our eternal benefit in the gospel. I think it could be those things, but here's what I think. I think the greatest of all joys of Christ was his future reunion with the Father in heaven. Receiving the Father's delight and to the glory of the Father's name. I think that's why it says here, if you look at the text, it says that he, he was set before him, despising the shame. Now, what he, where is he? He is seated at the right hand of God. That's the place of favor. That's the place of authority. That's the place of honor. John 17, 1, remember Jesus' priestly prayer. He lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. He set the glory of God's joy before him and he endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising meaning thinking nothing of it as he kept his eyes on the joy of the Father. As we run the race before us, we endure. Not only looking at witnesses, not only looking to Jesus, but look what it says in verse 3. But consider him who endured from, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We, 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 we are to recognize and realize all that Christ went through in the hands of sinners and the hostility and hatred. It should give us strength when we face trials. The word consider is interesting. It means, to, it means that Christ as a model, as, as someone we are to continually and constantly stare at, look at, for encouragement, for, for inspiration. It, it cures, it says, the weak hearts, the, the faint-hearted, right? You don't grow weary. You're not, you're not faint-hearted. Christ endured great suffering as he, as he finished the race. And, and think of the context now. These Christian, uh, uh, Jewish Christians were in danger of shrinking back from the persecution, the hatred, the hostility 
that they were receiving because of their faith. And he's saying, look, Jesus went on before us. He endured the cross. Look to him. Consider him. He made it to the end. You can make it to the end. When everything seems like in our lives, family, listen, around us is trying to pull us away from Christ, whether whether it's hostility, whether it's hardship, whether it's difficulties, look to the cross. Look to the cross. If you notice in our text, the word endure or endurance is, is three times. It's, it's, it's in chapter 12, verse, um, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Let us run with endurance. How? Because Christ endured. What he did on our behalf, we don't give up. We don't grow weary. And that's why, family, if you've been here any amount of time, we keep talking about the gospel. We keep talking about preaching the gospel to yourself regularly, continually. Now, as we look at Jesus, that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, you ever heard of Paul Tripp? Some of you have. Paul Tripp said this about preaching the gospel to yourself. I want to share it with you. He says there's a difference between reminding ourselves of truth and reminding ourselves about the truth of the gospel. Preaching to ourselves the truth of the gospel, he says this, is consciously and intentionally reminding ourselves of the person and the presence and the provisions of our God in Christ and our Redeemer. Presence, person, provisions of Christ. He says this spiritual discipline of preaching the gospel to yourself, he says, is both proactive and reactive. He says it's reactive as we encounter temptation and frustration, as we seek to, to, to restock in the moment or reflect back on our sins and our circumstances and evaluating all this stuff in, 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 in and through a gospel lens, the work of Christ. I'm, you know, like, in other words, you know, reminding ourselves I'm a new creation. He's my ultimate satisfaction. I'm, I'm forgiven when I confess and repent. I receive God's forgiveness. It's reactive. But he says it's also proactive. We go on the offense, he says, when we feed our souls in some regular rhythm, we feed our souls with some regular rhythm before the event, before the task, before the disappointments of daily life. Just when things are going, before things go that way, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel. Then he gives, and I want to share this with you, this is so good. Four ways, really quickly, jot them down if you want, email me, I'll send them to you. What does that mean to regularly in a rhythm remind yourselves of the gospel, looking to Jesus, considering Jesus, just like our text says. He says four things. One, gaze at the beauty of Christ. Gaze at the beauty of who Christ is, all that he has done, number one. Number two, remember who we are as children of God, our identity in him. Number three, rest in his power, Rest in Christ's power and Christ's provision for you. Okay? And last, act. Respond in reliance upon him. Trust God to give you the power and the strength and the wisdom to do what he has asked you to do. Gaze on the beauty. Remember you're a child. Rest in his power and provision. Act in reliance upon him. Run the race. Verse four, receive fatherly discipline. In your struggle against sin, the word struggle has to do with boxing, actually. So he's leaving the, the arena of running a race. He's going into the boxing arena, and the metaphor is, is about boxing. Sin now is personified. In your struggle, in your fight against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, verse 4, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, daughters? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Hmm. Don't be weary when reproved by him. He's like, listen, y'all struggling? Okay. You ain't shed your blood yet. Like, all right, I'll put things in perspective. Right? Jesus was obedient in his struggle against wickedness and brokenness and evil and hostility. And you know what? He was murdered for it. He was crucified. He was, he, he, his striving against sin, he submitted to his father and he went to the cross for it. Agony of the cross. If you think you got it bad, look at Jesus. I'm like, all right, yeah, that's helpful. The struggle here he's talking about against sin, you know, could take on many different things. I think most importantly here, I think he's talking about the temptation to sin against God by resisting and, and, and renouncing their faith in Christ in order to stop the persecution. Okay, whatever you say. But notice in verse 5. What, what is the author trying to tell us? What is God trying to tell us? Listen, in your suffering, don't assume. In your difficulties, in your hardship, don't assume somehow that God has abandoned you. This is because God has abandoned me. If there was, never, if there was ever a temptation to grow weary and faint-hearted, it would be third hardship and difficulties and struggles. And we falsely assume that God is unconcerned. It's a lie. Unconcerned about our welfare. And left us all by ourselves. No aid, no help. Going through something difficult. Actually, the text tells us the opposite is true for a genuine believer. He's already said, listen, Christ is your high priest. Christ has made a way by his body. Remember? Has opened the veil. That now we can, he says, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. We can, with confidence, receive mercy and find help, find grace to help in a time of need. Now he's saying, don't forget that anything you suffer for the sake of the gospel, be encouraged because God is not neglecting you. Actually, God is showing you. God is showing up as your father because he's treating you as his son, his daughter. Don't forget, verse five, the exhortation dresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Divine chastisement is a sign of sonship, daughtership. Part of being adopted into the family of God. He was concerned that as they were pressing on in the faith, they were dealing with struggles, they would grow weary because in the pain, in the suffering, they didn't see that God in love was using it as a master surgeon to discipline them. Verses 5 and 6, by the way, I've told you this before in your Bibles, you see the margin has changed. That's because it's a quote from the Old Testament. It's Proverbs 3. The word discipline, interesting word, by the way, the word discipline, well, let's go back. Chastisement, you see that verse six, chastise, you know what that word translated? Whipped, scourged. The word discipline, um, padea, was a common term for raising children, instructing children, training children, correcting children. The way in which parents would, you know, cultivate their hearts, you know, correct them when they sin, restrain their, their, their desires for, that they had got to have everything for the moment. 
You're thinking, I got to do that to myself. I get it. It's not just about punishment. It's not what God is saying. That's a different word. It's about disciplining, training, correcting to help that child mature, to grow. It's instruction through discipline. It's preventative. It's, it's, it's measured, right? So in, in the ancient world, just, just so you know, in the ancient world when this was written, the fathers were really the primary ones. Uh, the, the, the unquestioned prerogative of the duty really fell on the father who would do the discipline. Obviously today we as parents, grandparents, well, maybe you're a single mom or single dad, I get that as well. Um, we work together, right? We try to lovingly discipline our children. But let, let, let me speak to the couples just for a second. It's not really what drives the text, but you're responsible, guys. That's what headship is. Loving, leading, sacrificing, primary responsibility in the home. Don't turn it over to your wives. Take leadership. Lovingly care for your family. Just like the father does. And failing, it says here, according to our text, failing to discipline is not a sign of love. Failing to discipline is a sign of neglect. Rejection, not affection. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son, as a daughter. For what son is there whom the father doesn't discipline? If they love him, they're going to discipline. If you are left without discipline, verse 8, in which all have participated in, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So fatherly love, loving discipline go together. And this awareness, the, the fact that God loves us and God disciplines us as children should and needs to transform the way we think about discipline, about God. That he lovingly cares and lovingly disciplines us. And we might, that would transform the way we think even about trials. Andrew Murray, in every trial, small or first, excuse me, in every trial, small or great, first of all, at all once recognize God's hand is in it. Say it once. My father has allowed this to come. I welcome it from him. My, my first care is to glorify him in it. He will make it a blessing. We may be sure of this. Let us by faith rejoice in it. Listen carefully. God sends trials and hardships not out of spite, but out of fatherly love. Trials are designed to make us stronger, just like lifting weights, it stretches our muscles of faith that we can press on, that we can push on towards spiritual maturity and end the race well. And sometimes God works chastisement and hardship to remove sin in our lives, right? And God works, can I say, a divine spanking, right? It's never because God's wrath is against us. Understand that. There's a difference, right? For believers in Christ, the wrath of God against sin was placed on Jesus on Calvary. He drank the cup and he absorbed the wrath we deserve on himself and died and rose again. The plans that he has and the motives and the actions that God has towards his children is lovingly, is love and discipline. His plans concerning his people are always thought of good and blessing. He may use the rod, but it's not the rod of wrath. It's the rod of love. A temporal 
chastisement for our eternal welfare. There's not an evil, wrathful motive at all when it comes to God's discipline for his children. God corrects, prevents, educates his children by his discipline. Now, maybe you don't think this way I do. If you are a child of God by faith in Christ, a daughter or a son of the king, you have absolute assurance this morning right now that God is always, always, always for your good and not your destruction. You can be assured of that because it has nothing to do with you. If the loving motive and the good purposes of God's discipline was based on how I act and what I do, I'm done. Because it's not healthy and it's not good. Follow me now. If you look at your life on the basis for the motive and the purpose of God's discipline, you'll be all over the place. And here's what you'll be thinking. Is God mad at me? Right? Is he mad? Is he angry? Is he getting revenge? Is he, is he for me? Is he destroying me? How would you know? Here is how you know that God is for you, not against you. He is for your growth and, and not your destruction. He's working for you, for your good, and for his glory because of what Jesus did. Okay? Very important. It's not about you and your doing or not doing. God is always our good father because of the gospel. Because of the work of Christ. And that should radically change your view as well. That because of the perfect life, atoning death, glorious resurrection from the dead, I am always and eternally the child of the king. And therefore, God will always, always, always discipline me for my good and his glory. Always. Not about what I do. It's about what Christ has done. Does that make sense? He says it is a demonstration of the sonship and daughtership of who we are. It is the evidence that God is our Father. And you know what? God loves us and he cares enough about us to help us to grow. Like a loving father, he wants us to stay on the course. Not to be tripped up, not to be taken off the race. Not to be harmed, but to be matured. And that means, because God is sovereign, he takes my stupidity, my folly, my sin, and works it together for my good. Even if I get a divine spanking, it's for my good because Christ has brought me into a relationship where I now am his son. It's because of Christ. Dr. Brown, the Christian who goes through severe trouble must remember, therefore, that the God who tests us is the Lord who helps us. We are wounded sometimes by the love of the Father. It's a demonstration that we belong to him. He chastises every son, he says. Before we go to our next point, think, think of this for a minute. It says right here in our text, he chastises every son whom he receives. He's treating us as sons. Okay, you can see that as a father. He loves think of this, think of this. What if, what if, well, let me ask this question. Those who are children of God by faith are what? Disciplined in love. That would tell me that those who are not children of God by faith are what? Not disciplined in love. They're illegitimate children. So if we go our life with no discipline, no chastisement, we got to really question. The devil wants to come in and say, you know, everything is just fine. You're good. Don't worry. 
No chastisement. So would you rather be lovingly disciplined and chastised by a God who's your father because of Christ or left alone into the hands of the devil and be an illegitimate child? Sometimes I wonder those who have not been chastised, well, maybe that's a sign. I don't know. It's just something to think about. So we're running the race. We're receiving the Father's discipline. He loves us. He cares about us. Then we're going to remember his purposes. Look. For those who are taking the class, this is the argument from the lesser to the greater. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Know what he's saying? Listen, dads, moms, you did what you could, but you didn't get it right all the time. That's what he's saying. <laughs> sometimes we're too severe. Sometimes we're like too neglectful. Let's be honest. We're in a culture that's getting more and more, I think, neglectful of discipline. As Christians, we know that we're sinners and our sinful nature has passed on to the cute little ones. And uh, discipline is necessary. We shouldn't neglect it. Got to place boundaries on them and hold them accountable. You know what I mean? But we don't always get it right. Sometimes you show favoritism, you have more than one kid. Come on, let's be honest. Sometimes we discipline our kids because we had a bad day at work. God never makes that mistake. God never makes that mistake. No discipline of his is ever capricious, ill-informed, ill-tempered. None of his discipline has ever been misplaced. And we can know his grand aim and scheme of it all is to make us more like him. That's what it says, to be holy as he is holy. We are partakers, First Peter tells us, of the divine nature, and that's true. And God's discipline helps us to be more partakers of it. Verse 11. We'll finish verse 10. Look at verse 10. So they disciplined us for a short time to seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is training us to be like him, holy like him. God is training us for godliness. Productive discipline we go through hurts at times, does it not? Try to discipline your kids and they laugh at you. You'd be like, well, that didn't work. Go to your room, great, cool. Cool. No, it's not working. Do you want that again? No. Like, all right, that's working. Right? (laughs) Discipline is good even though it's hard sometimes, but it yields the fruit of conformity to Christ. Now, these people were, were facing hardship, and God is saying, listen, the author is saying to them through this is that when people treat you unfairly in life, God can use this as, 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 as a tool to become more like him. That's the purpose. The discipline imposed by our Heavenly Father, Philip Hughes says, yields a rich harvest. Here described as the peaceful fruit of righteousness, but only those who have been trained by it. And he says, to lose spirit, in other words, to give up, to grow weary, and to give up the struggle because the way is hard is to break training and to forfeit the harvest. And that's the difference between punishment and retribution. Punishment, retribution, excuse me, and discipline. Listen, somebody may go through the same thing you're going through. A believer and a non-believer could be going through the same thing, whether it's because of their sin and stupidity and things that they do, or whether it's just the brokenness of the world, whether it's sickness, whatever. We could be going through the same thing, but the purpose is different. 
As a child of God, you could say, I'm going through this because God, my Father, is disciplining me for my good, His holiness. I'm being trained to, to produce this harvest of righteousness, right living, to do the right thing, to remain humble, to walk in love. All those things God is doing in my life. See, the, the, the hardship may be the same, but the purpose is different. That's His point. Sometimes God disciplines us because of our sin. Look at King David, as I mentioned. The sin of adultery and murderous action toward Bathsheba's husband. Sometimes God disciplines us, you know why? To keep us from sin. Paul in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians was given a thorn in his flesh. It was to keep him from making himself proud. And God sometimes disciplines us to keep us from our sin and gives us hardships and difficulties so we don't go there. Sometimes God disciplines us not only because we sin, not only because we don't, we, he wants to keep us from sin. God disciplines us sometimes just by educating us. We're learning and growing. Job, right? At the end, like, uh, just so you got this educational class, you're not God, I am him. I'm him. You're not him. I'm the one who created the world. It's like, you got this great educational class. Let me tell you something else about God's discipline before we close. I think this is, this is really important. Lamentations. Listen to Lamentation chapter 3 says this. You know, parents, you ever hear, you ever, you ever discipline your kids? You got discipline, you said, this hurts me more than it does you? Well, sometimes that's true, right? I mean, sometimes I had to discipline my kids to the point where, like, it wasn't, you know, this is not good. You're going to get over it, but this is going to be hard for me. Do you know in Lamentation chapter 3 it says this? For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his hased, his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Okay? Now, I'm going to read that verse. I know it's a possibility of getting fired. I understand. I'm reading from the message again. It's the second time in a month. I, I, I'm dabbling with trouble. But let me, let me read it in the message, okay? Because the master won't ever walk out and fail to return. If he works severely, he works tenderly. He stockpiles of royal love are immense. He takes no pleasure in making life hard and throwing roadblocks in the way. So when Lamentation says he does not afflict from his heart, what he's saying is God does not get joy by just making life hard for you. Right? He's disciplining out of love even though it's painful for him. Matthew Henry he does not afflict with pleasure. He delights not in the death of sinners or the disquiet of saints, but punishes or disciplines with a kind of reluctance. He, he delights not in the misery of his creatures, but as it respects his own people, he is so far from it that in all their afflictions, he is afflicted and his soul is grieved for the misery of Israel. He loves us infinitely. And therefore, he's involved infinitely with our pain and our struggles and our difficulties himself. God is involved in every trial and he's driving us through it to be conformed to his image. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't want his discipline, check your heart. But if you're here this morning and saying, you know, God loves me God loves me enough to keep me from sin, to discipline me in my sin. He, he loves me enough to teach me about 
his ways. He's working in my life to be conformed to his image. He's trying to purge out the, the dark, sinful tendencies of my life. Then embrace him as a father because that's his purposes. They are good. Tom Landry, a coach, a football coach, said this. The job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. Paul told the church in Rome that God foreknew us. He received us. He loved us. He placed his affection upon us. He saved us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is doing. So I want to encourage you this morning. Participate, recognize, yield into, press into a loving dad, a loving father who disciplines us for our good. Look at verse nine and ask this question as we close. Will you be subject to the father of spirits and live or rebel against the father and die? Will you trust him this morning? Will you submit to his sovereign, loving, fatherly care so that your heart will not grow weak and your heart will not grow weary? Will you keep the faith, fight the good fight, finish the course and glory in our God in heaven? The band's gonna lead us and I want to just one more time proclaim the gospel to you. Here's the gospel. In our suffering, family, in our suffering, in our correction, in our discipline, in our chastisement, Jesus was saying, I was subject to the father of my spirits and I was crushed. I was crucified. I bore your shame. I was broken on your behalf. I shed my blood for you as I subjected to the Father's spirits in discipline now you can have him. I left my glory for my suffering. I was separated from God on the cross in my suffering but in your suffering you're going to get God. You're going to get love. You're going to get a tender father who loves and cares and is always working for our good and for his glory. Will you trust him this morning? Father, it is, as your word tells us, it can be hard. God, help us to understand that because of all of Christ, all that he has done, he has ushered us into your presence through his shed blood that we now are sons and daughters of the king. And as your children, you are always, always working in our life. We accept from your hand all that comes, knowing that it is for our good and your glory. And Father, some here, maybe this morning, don't know that because they have never trusted you. And they see their trials and their hardships and and the things in their life, and and they're wondering why, 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 what's going on? Lord, I pray that in their suffering, in their trial, they'll turn to you and trust you. And believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that they can have life and be reconciled, have a relationship with you. So as we sing our next song, Lord, help us to worship you. Not just words on a screen, but a song to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.